Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today you are in for a treat. We have on the show best-selling author, entrepreneur, and plant medicine expert, Aubrey Marcus. Now, Aubrey is not only a very well-known podcaster and best-selling author, but he is known as a documentarian who has partaken in plant medicine, ayahuasca, psychedelics, DMT, and everything under the sun more than a few hundred times. And I thought nobody would be a better expert to come on to the show for the first time and talk about the spiritual aspects of taking plant medicine to transcend to the other side. And Aubrey and I had a epic two-hour conversation where he not only told me about the good stuff, but also the negative, dark, possibly evil aspects to taking plant medicine, DMT, and things to watch out for. And it is a mind-blowing conversation. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Aubrey Marcus. How you doing, Aubrey? I'm doing good, brother. I'm doing really good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This has been a long time coming, man. We've been trying to get this connected for a while. You're a busy man. I'm a busy man. And we're finally here. So I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to the audience, man. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I've been really looking forward to this and just appreciate the work that you've been doing. And I know you've you know reflected the mutuality of that. And uh, so, yeah, let's go. Let's dive deep. Let's mix it up. Let's get weird. Let's have some fun. <laughs> this is going to be great, man. So, you know, you're, you know, when I started watching your stuff, uh, you know, you are, your adventures in plant medicine and psychedelics and um, what's the word that you used before we started talking the other way? Psychonautics. Psychonautics and all, which we'll get into that in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, has been fascinating to me because I've never partaken, but I've spoken to many who have. And it fascinates me because it's part of the spiritual evolution and what spirituality has to say about what plant medicine does and the access to plant medicine does and all of that. And I'll start our conversation with a quote from, I think there was the Maharishi who said, when asked about the psychedelics, I think they gave him a handful of mushrooms and he just ate all of them and nothing happened to him. And they were like, everyone was like freaking out. Like, how did nothing happen to you? He was like, I live here. Why do this does nothing to me? I don't need a ticket Mm -hmm. for the place that I've already arrived. And he's like, when you take psychedelics, it's like taking a sledgehammer to the wall to get the sun to come in. But when you meditate and evolve like a yogi does, it's like putting in a window. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking about it. So your adventures in psychedelics, what started it? man? And by the way, do you agree with that, that analogy, by the way? 
Not entirely. Okay, <laughs> Not good. Entirely. All right. But, but there's yeah. also there's also some there's some truth that it's pointing to. Yeah. But there's I think so. So let's talk about this for a little bit, please. Because for me, I never would have pursued the entirety and the full scope of my spiritual path if I had not been burst through the wall and given a glimpse of where I am going. Yes. And that's what I think they these masters and teachers, they overestimate people's commitment to just sit down 20 years of time spent on a cushion to get to a place that they haven't even felt yet. So it's just on pure faith alone. I'm going to get somewhere and that's somewhere I'm going to get is going mm -hmm. to be spectacularly transcendent. But for the first five years, I'm just going to try not to think about sex and not get distracted while I'm sitting on my meditation cushion. Right, right. Like, we don't live in that type of lifestyle. And what we need is we need a global transformation of consciousness. And yes. I believe that these medicines and these techniques, because it's not just medicine, and that's mm -hmm. to I kind of open up that bracket about psychonautics. Why I talk about psychonautics is psychonautics are ways to actually burst through into these different, true, real realities that are always there, always moving through us, always accessible but allow us to catch a glimpse. And then it's our job to find the way to actually harvest the wisdom of those glimpses that we have, bring them, integrate them into our life and find and build the bridges that we can access those states more readily. Now that usually involves some kind of dedicated practice outside of using the plant medicines, but catching that glimpse not only gives you deep insights, deep healing, deep wisdom. I mean, what maps the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies has shown with treatment resistant PTSD is mm -hmm. that that's treatment resistant. That means they've tried everything and it's not working. And two out of three of these participants have taken three MDMA assisted psychotherapy journeys and cured their trauma, their PTSD, and they never have to do it again. Right? So it's like lasting effects from temporary glimpses of these alternate realities. So there's massive benefits that are not being captured by what I think is a true a, but partial view that some of the some of the masters have shared and mm -hmm. so for me i never would have been on this spiritual path that i'm on if i wasn't burst through and shown that it was possible because i started 18 years old materialist reductionist god is it when you mm -hmm. die you just go to the blackness and you dissolve into and there's nothing else other than matter and whatever else so like the mirror like the mystery of how life began who the fuck knows but all there mm -hmm. is is there's life and then you die and then that's it yeah right and i was convinced mm -hmm. and then so i go and my father who had worked with stan groff and had done one of the psychonautic practices which is holotropic breath work which is oh. deep deep breath work which is as powerful as cool. many of the psychedelic journeys that i've ever been on so i want to say like you don't have to take anything, but I believe that in the times that we're in, you have to do something. And that may be a darkness retreat. That may be breath work. That may be ecstatic dance. That may be sensory deprivation. That may be meditation. There's a, so many different ways to get there, or it may be plant medicine or maybe psychedelics. But for me, it was the first experience was a psychedelic journey. And it was the combination of MDMA and psilocybin guided by a shaman who came from the Stan Groff lineage, which was an old Esalen kind of lineage where they were all connected, like the OGs of the first Renaissance. And I went in terrified. And I tell this story in my upcoming book, you know, Psychonaut, which is going to come out in February. It's the first chapter because it's the first, it's the first episode. 
and I was terrified. And I grabbed a rock that I found out there in the woods outside north of Santa Fe. And I was like, as long as I hold on to this rock, I know that I'll exist. So I was worried I was going to lose my mind. I was worried of like losing right. control of my grip on reality. I was terrified. And my shaman, she was just so calming. She said, whatever you do, just witness and allow, witness and allow. And just, you know, and I trusted her. I just, I had an intuitive, deep trust. She had this powerful maternal mother, mothering energy. So I took the medicine and <clears throat> I felt my body dissolve completely. And the only thing that remained, I had these unbelievable visions walking through these fields of wheat and feeling connected. It was like the scene from Gladiator where he's in Elysium and I was like, in Elysium. And then all of a sudden that disappeared. And I just merged into the field. And I was like, Oh, my God, the only words that I can use to describe here is this is my soul. And this is God. And so I didn't believe in soul. And I didn't believe in God. Right. So after that journey, and after that experience, I stayed up all night in the driving rain, and big storm came in, and there was a fire in my little hut. And just by the firelight and like low light, I just stayed up writing, writing, writing and filling like half of a journal with the revelations of being in a new reality now where the soul was real and I knew it was real. I knew it in my body, anthro ontologically, anthropos, my body ontologically, that which is real. I knew in my body that the soul was real and that there was a field of something that you could call God. And still all of my former critiques of capital R religion, mm -hmm. they still stood. However, the materialist reductionist idea that there is no such thing as soul and no such thing as God that got that got absolutely decimated. And right. some of my actual understanding of what the true soul is and what the true God is started to shift. And that set me on a path where I was like, all right, I can't trust what all of the old dusty books have said, I need to go read and learn from all the great traditions. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I need to actually feel if I can feel the truth of all of that myself. And so I went on this self-exploratory path. And I've been on that path for 24 years. It's taken me through all the great plant medicines, aboga, ayahuasca, wachuma, which is San Pedro, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, 2CB, yopo, vilka, whatever you want to see, whatever, whatever is available, you can You've pretty done, much you, count you, on, I've done it. That's amazing. So, okay. So, so much to unpack there. Um, first, first question though, what caused you to start? What caused you to take that first leap into the abyss? So that's like a, that's the really good question. And you know, I'm working with an editor on my book and uh, it's really helpful to have an editor. If anybody just oh, side yeah. bracket, if you're a writer, like mm -hmm. it's great, even if you're a good writer and I'm, and I am a good writer, like, I'm, I mean, I won't have a false humility. I'm a good writer, but an editor is really helpful because they ask key questions like that. Like, mm -hmm. why did you do this? And I've really had to explore this going back to when I was 18, I was 24 years ago. And part of it was because my father had, my father had done it. And my father said, you know, this is an experience that I'd like to invite you to. And I believe in it. And I trust my dad, you know, and my dad wasn't always right. He led me into some situations that were not so good, <laughs> you know, like strange medical treatments that I did that actually didn't help at all and actually create, you know, and <laughs> right. he led me into some great, he led me into some great things, but I overall trusted my father. So that was one trust in my father. And number two, 
just sheer curiosity. And number three, I have to say that there was something guiding me in my own soul that was guiding me to say yes. But to exactly pin down like what my thinking was, I'm not sure. Also, I had a, I had a sense from my understanding of indigenous culture that mm -hmm. already that we were missing like a rite of passage. And it's, this was a point where I was leaving the house and I understood that, you know, I come from the Hebrew lineage. So I didn't even get a bar mitzvah because I was talking to my parents. My grandma really wanted me to, but my dad, I was talking to my dad. I was like, what is this really going to do? Is this really going to make me, is this a coming of age where I really become a man because I study the Torah and I can recite some Hebrew? He's like, no, son, it's not. I was like, well, I'm not going to do it then. And he's like, all right. <laughs> and I was, and so we started talking about like, why, what is a real rite of passage? And he's like, ultimately is like, this is the right time. And this is a real rite of passage. Like I promise you, son, you'll be a different man on the other side of this than right. you were on the front side of this. And, and he was right. How old were you when you did it for the first time? 18. So you were eight. No, you definitely become a man after you take one of these. At that age. It was different. Yeah. Man in a different way. Man right. being that I was connected to the father and the mother in a different way. And I understood my place in the cosmos and my responsibility in the cosmos, I started to understand that in a different way that transcended, included and transcended my separate self-identity. So yeah, I was Aubrey, but I was also a part, an inextricable part of that field of love, of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so I knew myself as a different person than I was then. You know, So lots of these rites of passage are trying to connect you to the tribe rather than just your separate self. So if you're putting your hand in a in a kind of a, a woven basket full of stinging ants to prove your courage, you know, mm -hmm. that's to help bond you with the tribe. So the tribe can trust you. So these technologies are about getting you to actually expand beyond your own personal needs and desires into a larger group. But this goes all the way to expanding you and opening you to the entire field of all consciousness itself and all life itself. So you become an inextricable part of capital L life. And that is, to me, a deep part of what it means to be a man, is to actually know yourself as participating in a greater field and the responsibility to protect life in all of its forms. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's it's, it's not the, the first level, which is the tribe. You're talking about now this conscious, wide open, basically mm -hmm. all of reality kind of, uh, kind of uh, energy. When you took, when you took the first, what was the first thing you took? It was a combination of MDMA and psilocybin. So psilocybin. the, the street was... name for that would be like called a, called a hippie flip. <laughs> That's awesome. But so in the, I... in the, in the shamanic context, of course, she didn't say you're about to do a hippie flip, you know, but yeah. <laughs> that's like in, in common, you know, in common what? language, that's what it would be called. So let me ask you, when you came back from that first trip, how did you psychologically deal with what you have seen? I mean, because what we're talking about is a pretty heavy realization. It changed your life. It really set you on a completely different path. But that first try must have been not only a trip, but psychologically trying to deal with it. Because one thing is I, I, I sense from what you're telling me that spiritually you were awakened and you started down this path. But psychologically, the brain deals with things very differently than the soul does. So how did mm. your brain deal with this new understanding and psycholo just psychologically deal with this all? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It was the death <laughs> of the world that I believed I was in. 
It was the right. death of that world. And it was the awakening into another world. This was very right. much like a matrix level moment. Now, mm -hmm. obviously not in this dystopian context, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. But in some ways it was, it was that it was of a gravity of that nature where I was in one world. And after one night, I was forever in a different world that included and transcended the world that I was formerly in. It's not that the separate self disappears, the separate self never disappears, never going to get rid of your ego. You know, like that's the biggest ego trip around is trying to pretend that you're going to get rid of your ego, right? That's all mm -hmm. spiritual materialism. So it includes and transcends every way up the every way up the spectrum. But so not only did I change, but my entire world changed. And so when you have a paradigm shift of that magnitude, it's pretty wild. And so I became incredibly curious for one, because I realized if that much could change that fast, there is so much more that I don't know. So there was a deep humility, as well as there was some things that I felt like I did know, because I felt them and I experienced them. And nobody could tell me that I experienced something else. Like I knew it, I knew what had happened. It was a, it was a, a reality that this was no hallucination. This was, you could just, I could feel it in every cell in my body. And so I knew it. So there was both the humility and curiosity, as well as this deep kind of desire to almost evangelize like what I had seen. So it was like the, the all of the things <laughs> that I had kind of railed against is everybody evangelizing about this God that they'd read about in the books and their parents had told them about. I became that as well. I was like, yo, like, there is something real here. I, I can promise you, I tell you, like, this is real. And, uh, and that spirit has kind of stuck with me in a way. And it's just like, I want people to know that there's something very real to our spirit, to our soul, to our consciousness, and to the field of love that we participate in, which when you use the word God, it's very loaded because of all of the things that have been projected onto God, but call it what you want, call it the mystery which incorporates the humility aspect, call it the divine, call it source, call it, there's many names for God in the Hebrew lineage, which I've currently taken back on to understand from a mystical perspective. You might call it Shekinah, you might call it Elohim, you might call it the mm -hmm. Christ field. There's a variety of different ways and they have different ways that you can disambiguate them, but they're also similar in many ways. Um, Wakantanka, great spirit, you know, all of these things were pointing at different faces and different textures of this field of the divine love and power of the cosmos. So when you kind of had this, this awakening, uh, you were a different human being. So you're a different person when you came out of it. How did the people around you deal with this new Aubrey, which, you know, mm -hmm. like I always talk to near death experiencers and, and channelers and things like that, who, I go, when, when you came out of the spiritual closet, how did the people around you, you know, deal with you? And then how did you deal with losing people who just were not on board with where you were going? The interesting thing is, is I didn't really experience the loss because I still included the same things about Aubrey that everybody knew and loved. Like I could still get out on the basketball court and yeah. I was looking to not only beat you, I was looking to actually destroy you. <laughs> like, I wanted you to leave with nothing. When you played me on the court, like, I wanted you to leave with nothing. I wanted to take everything from very you. Spiritual, very spiritual, very <laughs> spiritual, very yeah. spiritual. But in that, and so in that, in that level, like, and that was mm -hmm. something that people loved about me is that I was yeah. like fierce and funny and I would talk and like yeah. still, and also like, if it was time to party, like, I still wasn't afraid to grab the bottle of Crown Royal 
and go mm -hmm. like, let's go, let's dance, mm -hmm. let's party. Let so it didn't create a separation from the rest of my life. It just said, all this is still, all this is still me. I still like doing the same thing. Like, don't worry. It's not like I'm not going to hit that jump shot and then, you know, call you out that I, that I, you know, shot it right in your face and there might mm -hmm. be something still stuck in your eye or like, how are your ankles after that crossover? Like, it's still <laughs> me. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And that's actually an important aspect that I think yeah. I've carried through this whole thing is that I'm still participating in, in the world and of the world in the same way that I was participating as well. But there's another dimensional reality that I can also access. So this started to, I started to work with the idea of the warrior poet, mm -hmm. which the warrior poet to me was an idea of these two opposing concepts. Either you're a warrior or a poet, either you're spiritual or you're carnal. And I was like, no, we can be both. And it's actually our birthright to be both. And so I was able to still meet people where they were at. And if they didn't want to talk about the spiritual stuff, all good. We could be, we could play ball together. If they just wanted to party and like, and I wanted to party, great, we'll party. You know, like if they wanted to talk philosophy and rational, rational thought and debate, you know, Aristotle versus Plato and I'm great. You know, I was a, I was a philosophy major at university of Richmond. I loved getting into philosophy and Spinoza yeah. and the whole deal. So I was able to still access people where they were at, but then also at the same time, which made people comfortable. Cause I think like if I would have come back and I would have started wearing robes instead <laughs> of Nike shorts and you know, whatever, <laughs> I didn't have the greatest sense of style back then. I think sure, my, sure. my sense of style has improved over the, I mean, I look back at some of the pictures, like what is that? Oh, wearing? Dude, was, dude, we all need a good woman in our life to set us straight. <laughs> yeah, for I, gotta, sure. I mean, there's no question about that, sir. <laughs> for sure. We're savages. So like, we're savages. We're savages. So, I was still, it did, I didn't come back with mala beads and I didn't come back in robes. It was still, I was still wearing the same clothes. I was still talking the same. I was still the same guy. And I think that allowed a bridge and it's still allowed a bridge that's allowed people to follow me because it's not just that I'm talking about these spiritual concepts. All right, you want to talk about business? You know, I grew a business called on it from $110,000 investment to a big nine figure exit. So you want to talk business? I'll talk business with you. You know, like I can play that game. You want to talk sports? Like which one you want to play? You know, and mm -hmm. it's like, let's ball, let's go. You want to talk philosophy? I'll talk philosophy. You want to talk whatever you want to talk. You want to talk in middle English romance literature? Great. That was one of my specialties. You know, we can talk about Chrétien de Troyes and we can talk about the Arthurian legends and Yvain, the Knight of the Line. Whatever you want to talk about, like I'm still going to go there. And if you want to talk about the soul, you want to talk about God, you want to talk like I'm fully comfortable talking about that as well. So it didn't create an exclusionary kind of field. So really people didn't drop out people. Some people were like, I don't know about all that stuff, man. And I was like, that's all right. But if you do want to know, you know, I can lead you to the people that you can find out the answers for yourself. So, cause I realized that for me, no matter what anybody told me, I wasn't going to believe them right. until I felt it myself. And so I've always kept that is like, don't take me for just my word, but I can, I can tell you that if you do this breath work, you're going to find some access to somatically stored trauma that you don't know is there. And I can pretty much promise that that's going to happen. If you really give it your full, your full intent and your full heart. If you go into a darkness retreat, which I've, I went in for six days, which is absolute black, where you start producing endogenous DMT and you start, you're going to see some stuff and you're going to feel some stuff. 
that's going to change your perspective on life. Like I'm, I'm sure that, and if you do these plant medicines, you're going to access different, different dimensional realities that will change your perspective. And so, yeah, sure. You know, if you want to just read my book, Psychonaut, and just get all of the wisdom that I've gotten and take me at my word, great. But that's not the point. The point is that I'm sharing all of the many ways that I found the truths that I've arrived at. And it's an invitation, like whichever one resonates with you, please take it. Like, don't just trust me and let me share from my level of experience. Here are the traps. Here are the sticky places that I got in because there's challenges with this as well. You can encounter some really dark energies. You can get stuck in a variety of different traps that can lead you into different, different kind of temporary or even longer term levels of psychosis. And you can also encounter people with bad intentions and in serving the medicine. There's lots of areas where you can run into trouble. And so I'm trying to do my best to say like, all right, this is a really powerful path, but here are the, here are the dangerous spots. Here are the, here are the neighborhoods you got to stay away from. Here are the places that if you do find yourself in this neighborhood, in this hell, in this loca of darkness and delusion, here's your way out. So that's been kind of, I'm almost like a Sherpa. And that's like a Sherpa can right. tell you what it's like to summit Everest, but that's not the point. The Sherpa is like, right. no, like I can help you. I can help guide you there. And whatever experience you have on the top of Everest is going to be yours, but it's going to be pretty, it's going to be similar to what some other people have found because it's still the top of Everest filtered through your own prism, your own hermeneutic prism is the word Hermes being mm -hmm. the one that communicates, you know, mm -hmm. all everything to one another. And we have our own hermeneutic prism. So it's the way we see things. And each of us have a unique hermeneutic prism. So what you experience in these medicines is going to be different, but there's also going to be something similar about it because of our shared resonance and access to this same shared field. So let's dive in real quick on, because I know, I'm sure you know technically what happens. What is going on when you take some of these plant medicines or psilocybin or DMT? What is happening physically in the brain that is causing these experiences to happen. So this has been one of the things that science has really focused on to help mm -hmm. understand, because we live in a world where, you know, materialist reductionist scientific inquiry is very important. And yeah. so my understanding includes and transcends those understandings. So what's happening is a variety of different things, depending on the medicines that you're on. Right. So each one has different mechanism of action. So it has a different kind of nature to it. A lot of them like psilocybin and DMT, one of the first receptors they act on is the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor and the DMT or the psilocybin molecules plug into these receptors and then it shifts the blood flow in the brain. So what's called the default mode network, which interprets reality in the normal way then goes a little bit offline and the other, you know, the other parts of the brain light up and then the receptors have different molecules that are fitting in. And so you can look at what's happening there, but it doesn't really explain what, what else is happening. And that's only one of the receptor sites. Like I just mm -hmm. spoke with Jim Fadiman, who's one of the pioneers in psychedelic research. And I was talking to him about 5-HT2A and he was like, well, that's just one of the receptors. And we've just proven that. And there's been an overly, an overemphasis on that receptor. But you got to realize that there's 1.54 quadrillion molecules in one microgram 
1.54 quadrillion molecules in a microgram, which is enough for hundreds to go to every cell of your body. And there's not those receptor sites in every cell. So something is happening cellularly that we cannot accurately quantify with what we've been studying with the money that we've had to study it also, which has been limited compared to like cancer research or other things Mm -hmm. like that. More money is flowing in. So we have some ideas of what's happening, but really what I think is more important to understand is that we live in a multidimensional reality. And you've kind of mentioned that you watch some of my Matthias episodes. I don't know if you watched my nine dimensional existence model that I talked to with Matthias, which was very interesting because I'd come to a nine dimensional model through my own psychonautic, you know, work. And he remembered Matthias is someone who remembers his past lives and he's going to be a guest on your show. So if mine comes out before that, make sure you look for that. It's going to be a great conversation, (laughs) but we live in a nine dimensional existence. This is my belief. And this is what I not only have heard from Matthias, but what I've felt and experienced. And what's happening is like Aldous Huxley said, these medicines are opening our doors of perception so that we're able to actually see our nine dimensional existence, which touches all the way to God and goes all the way down to the most material aspect of who we are, our DNA, our cells, et cetera. And that we're participating in this multi-dimensional existence. And this is opening the doors to the other dimensions, which are always there, but our brain is acting as a cognitive filtering device. Again, Aldous Huxley's mm-hmm. word, a cognitive filtering device. What is the thing we need to focus on? So for example, an example of cognitive filtering, Right now, the only thing I see in this room is your face. Mm-hmm. That's really all I'm looking at. But there's a painting above me over there. There's people who are walking around outside. There's a flashing light on this video game basketball thing that I have in my office over there. There's all kinds of things, but I'm not paying attention because I'm focusing on here, like what's important. Mm-hmm. And what's important is this conversation. So we're always filtering even within this dimensional reality, but we're filtering even beyond this dimensional reality. We're filtering out all of the other dimensions so that we can focus on navigating this reality. And this is opening those Venetian blinds, opening those doors of perception. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So, so that I always, I always tell people, cause I've been meditating for many, many years. I, and I, I do long, long runs of hour to two hours by baseline and sometimes longer. So for me, as I started to meditate, that perception started to open Yes. more and more. And you start to see things a little bit differently. It's like, I don't see the matrix yet. I don't see the ones and zeros flying, but you start to perceive things at a very different level. Then I did a breath work, um, session. I actually have done a few breathwork sessions, but the first one blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I, I never can see when you said that, I was like, well, I've done that. I've done so because I have done it, but in a different way. So I never considered them in the same category, but the breathwork opened me up it physically, mentally, it just completely like kind of blew my socks off really. And then mm-hmm. my meditations yep. took on a whole new level right afterwards i'm like wait a minute i'm feeling things in my meditations that i've never felt before yep because it opened up a door and that kind of continued to go oh well if you're going to do this it keeps so that perception is opening and that's what the masters you know these masters have been talking about for years with meditation yes. it is one of many ways to get in there um 
but it's a much slower process and gradual as opposed to a psychedelic that shoots you through like a roller coaster essentially correct yeah yeah correct and so you are a psychonaut like you are you're someone who uses practices and technologies like meditation and breath work to explore regions of your consciousness that were previously unexplored so that's the definition of a psychonaut like an astronaut explores the astral realm of of all of the space you're exploring your psyche and you're exploring your consciousness and you're using the technologies of psychonautics of meditation and breath work and that you found that the synergy between them has been supportive and i think that's also something that i think the masters are missing is that all of these things can work together in harmony Mm -hmm. And that it's important to have your baseline practices of meditation and breath work to allow you to really access and really harvest the gold that you get from these experiences. But I would venture to say that if you do feel called at some point to experience psychedelic medicine and do ayahuasca or something like that, you'll be able to bring those lessons and that access point into your meditative practice and your meditation Mm -hmm. will actually accelerate just as it did with breath work. Because what's happening with breath work, so not only are you hyper-oxygenating your blood, but in the process of that, as some of the science has shown, and Wim Hof has been on the frontier of this, mm-hmm. you're actually increasing levels of endogenous DMT. So DMT being one of the most psychoactive psychedelic molecules. But we've proven now with some of the research coming out from Dr. John, from John Dean and some different research that DMT is endogenous where it's produced within the cerebral spinal fluid of our own bodies and breath work actually increases the availability of it. Now it has a very short lifespan. So in, in once exposed to oxygen and once removed from the body, it degrades very quickly. So it's been very difficult to study this and actually prove it, but it's been proven now. And it's been proven that breath work actually increases that. So you're having your own endogenous DMT trip. You're getting high on your own supply, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and like that's Wim, opening like up. Says. Yeah, like exactly. Wim says. <laughs> Wim says that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a way for you to access these, these levels without actually having to take any substance other than an increased quantity of air. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's the that's the pathway to get there. Yeah, and I, I when I was studying the yogic philosophies and the yogic traditions, I started to, you know, a whole book on yogic breath work, mm-hmm. and Running how po- yeah, exactly how powerful the breath work was, and and then I started I interviewed a few people in Wim Hof and a couple other masters in in the in the breath work space, and they're like, here, try this or try that, and I, and it just kind of I could not believe the power of the breath. It was so powerful and overwhelming. I was like, really just doing this kind of deep breath work <laughs> is going to take me to a psychedelic. I mean, it really, I mean, it didn't, I didn't get a trip. Like I wasn't going on a trip. I didn't go on a trip, but it definitely physically st- things happened to me. Like I felt energy flowing in weird places. Mm-hmm. Um, the the limbs started to go not like cold and numb yep it, yeah. all of that yeah all the all the energies was leaving your your extremities and going into in the internal body uh and it was it's the opposite of fight flight or fight when you yeah. fight or fight all the blood goes out to your legs and your arms this was the opposite and it was like you started to your hands started to cramp up a little bit but not in a painful way just like there's just nothing there it was really really powerful 
So mm-hmm. uh, I'm now, thank you for making me aware that I have, I'm a psychonaut. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, okay. So I'll tell you my first breathwork story. So I'm, you know, probably 28. Okay. And so that means it's been 10 years of psychonautic exploration. And I go to get offered my first shamanic breath work from, uh, from a teacher who's still practicing out in Sedona, Anahata Ananda. And she's like, all right, we're going to do breath work. And I'm coming in all cocky, like breath work. You know, I've done all the <laughs> mushrooms and MDMA and DMT. And like, what is this breath work going to do? I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. And not only did I have intense somatic re- releases, I also had a clear, clear vision that it still is like as crystal clear a memory as anything, a vision of my of me looking back at me, but me as the fully embodied soul version of myself, like the highest version of me looking back at me with this deep open hearted peace and serenity and wild love. And I saw that vision come to me and I was like, like I have been really under indexing the power of this. And I happened at the same, it was at the same week long retreat. We were doing a variety of fasting and different cleansing modalities and then the breath work. And then we also did my first ecstatic dance. And then I was like, ecstatic dance. I dance all the time. Like this'll be, this'll be whatever, you know? Like I thought it was going to be cheesy too. And I was blown away. My body went into this state that technically would be called super fluidity where it just collapsed. It was my body and the music and all my self judgment about the moves that I was making and trying to look cool while I danced. all that disappeared. And it was just movement and sound and in the movement and sound also the vision space opened back up. And so I started having like visions during this in this deep trance. And of course, dancing like this has been a part of so many different cultures. And we look Mm -hmm. at it as a cultural phenomenon rather than a psychonautic practice that helps people access these alternate dimensional realities. Now, you didn't mention uh, some bad trips and some potential traps along the way. So that's the thing that a lot of people uh, who who are trying to even think about doing this uh, is scared of, of going into a bad trip or really doing it. So can you tell us an example of the worst kind of trip that you have, if you want to share that kind of like the, the scariest moment? Because again, my reference points are people who I've interviewed that have told me like, yeah, I, my entire body got this, my entire body was deconstructed from the fingernails down. I became nothing but uh part of the universe. I flew out, met God, had a conversation, came back and you know, that the exact trip I'm talking about is the guy who wrote Ghost. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, and he also wrote Jacob's Ladder. And you go, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that makes sense. So those are the reference points I have. I haven't really heard a bad one yet. So, well, this is scary. an interesting thing. So challenging, difficult, challenging. scary, scary. Yeah. is different than bad. Yeah. So let me, say, yeah. let me distinguish. So my first ayahuasca trip, was challenging, difficult, scary. And I won't belabor the story, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes to explain bad, difficult, I mean, challenging, difficult, scary. So I go into this ayahuasca experience and it's my first ayahuasca experience. I'm 30 years old and I've done a lot of other medicines, but never ayahuasca. And I was prepared. So I was prepared for this witness and allow kind of concept. I've understood, I'd gone through some deeply challenging, like 
family trauma and different things that I was able to experience. But so I had some experience with challenging, you know, going through deep emotional traumatic states, you know, times where my father flew into rage and I had, you know, this was early on and I experienced, re-experienced that, but was able to re-imprint it by going back there as my adult self and then protecting my child self and then speaking to my father in the vision space. So there's those type of experiences, but that was just so beautiful and powerful. I wouldn't even call it necessarily challenging, but it's heavy. It was heavy, you know, mm -hmm. so there's heavy and there's a heavy experience when you're accessing trauma. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. This one was challenging, difficult, scary. And so here's how it started. It starts, so I drink the medicine, they blow out the candles, I'm deep in the jungle. It was actually so deep in the jungle that when we left the Maloka, we saw actually fresh jaguar tracks, like oh, nice. separating our Maloka. From oh, it's nice. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Fantastic, so fantastic. <laughs> yeah, deep jungle. Fantastic. Yeah, so I'm and, gonna be on ayahuasca and there's wild jaguars feet so, you know, <laughs> inches away from me. Yes. And I can't tell if it's a psychedelic trip or if it's a real Jaguar. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's fantastic. <laughs> exactly. And the shaman, Maestro Orlando Chuandama, El Dragon de la Selva, we've, I put out a little mini documentary kind of showing yeah. my relationship with him for, you know, 14 years. Um, so I go in, the first thing that happens is I see these visions of these spiders and insects crawling in through my eyes and through my ears laying eggs and exploding out of my eyes, ears, mouth, and nose. And I was like, that is highly disturbing. However, I'd been familiar enough with these kind of, I've had, I had another vision where some of that happened. So I was like, all right, I get it. This is ayahuasca. No big deal. I'm, I'm all right. But it was disturbing, obviously. <laughs> That's a should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then next, these eels come up from the water. We were on the Madre de Dios River. They come up from wherever the water was. I couldn't see it. It's pitch black, but I could feel that they came up from the water and they're going and they find my stomach. They spiral into my stomach and they're eating with their like gnawing teeth and they're going into my stomach. They start eating all of my organs from the I'm slithering around. And I'm like, okay, wow, that's rather disturbing, but no big deal. I got this. Um, you know, I can handle you're, this. It's not you're still on tight. You're like, that's yeah. fine. It's fine. I'm going to shake yeah, this fine. off. This yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to shake this off. So then next, Ayahuasca is like, okay, you know, you pass test one and two. Let's go to test three. Test three, I'm sliding down this Jack and the Beanstalk endless vine, and I'm completely naked. And the vine has thorns that are pointed upwards. And so it's eviscerating me from my genitals first, like ripping up my balls, cocks, stomach, yeah. chest, yeah. face, yeah. neck. And I'm like, that is even a horrible thing to imagine, let alone to see this happening yeah, to myself. Yeah. I was like, that is, that is like, and I, but I was still in a point where I was like, well done, ayahuasca, well done. You know, that was, that was, in, you're this. increasing, you're increasing in the horrifying nature of these visions, but well done, well played. You're playing and like a video, you're like playing a video game. You're exactly. like, you said you're like level three, sounds good. Yeah. Right, I'm still I'm good. good, I'm good. I'm holding yeah. on. Level four me up though, because- <laughs> Okay, so my uncle, my uncle had recently passed from lymphoma. So level four, ayahuasca goes, hey, you have lymphoma too. You're going to die. You're going to die from cancer. Slow and painful death, just like your uncle. Oh. And I was like, and so that hit something. That was a real oh, fear. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 no. 
I do not. I'm healthy. I'm strong. And I'm feeling my glands. And I'm like feeling my neck. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then I think I feel something a little bulge. I'm like, oh, and it's like, there it is. You found it. You, that's it. That's your cancer. You're going to die. And so for about two hours, I'm there in the black. Maestro Orlando singing Icaros. I'm seeing snakes circle the Maloka. And I'm just in terror. And I'm in, I'm in just this deep arguing with ayahuasca, which is trying to convince me that I currently have cancer and I'm going to die. And finally, just out of exhaustion, I go, fine. Okay. I have cancer and I'm going to die. I'm just going to love everybody as much as I can. I'm going to write as much as I can. I'm going to live the best next few years of my life. So be it. And then the moment I released and surrendered to that, then I felt like Awa come up from the ground and nuss, like hold me in this cradle of light. And the voice of Mother Ayahuasca comes and says, you don't have cancer, sweetheart. You're perfectly healthy. And we've always got you. Like, I've always got you. And I just start bawling, right? And it was like, wow. that was level four. But level four was difficult. Like, it was difficult. But that really changed that really changed my life because from that point, my fear of cancer, I had moved beyond it. I'd faced it, accepted it and found a deeper peace on the other side of it where I was like, okay, if that's my fate, so it is. And I'll live my life to the best of my ability. So that's what I would put in the challenging, difficult, <laughs> scary category. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, and, but ultimately it had a full resolution and I came out of there like radiant and shining and like, I passed a deep test and I came out the other side stronger for it now. So, so I'll open that up. So if you want to comment on that at all, now I'm going to move to a bad, what I would call a bad experience. Okay. So that, that sounds, it's so interesting too, because it, it, I'm looking at this from the spiritual standpoint. Okay. Mm -hmm. And at first it's throwing things at you that are terrifying, but it's a horror movie and you're disconnected from it essentially. Right. And you're like, oh, that's pretty horrible. That's yeah, it's yeah, oh, God, I can't watch faces of death anymore. Like it's enough. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's but you're disconnected. Like I'm not the one getting my head broken open, like that monkey yeah. is. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. faces yeah, of yeah, death. Yeah. For everybody of a certain age, they'll know what that means. Um, mm. so but the second it touched something, it was just a simple line. It yeah. knew where to go inside your psyche and really pull something out that yes. meant something. So first three horror movie. Next thing was like, Oh, you got cancer. Just like your uncle, like, Oh, well, boom. That's like the, like, a, you know, in the MMA thing, that's like, they got you in a guillotine at that point. You're that's like, it, you're, you're, sure. you're, you're going, you're going down. And it's, but it's so interesting spiritually what's happening to you. It, it is a part of you is a fear inside of you subconsciously that I don't know if you had it consciously or not, but it's like, no, no, let's pull this weed out of the garden and really mm. bring it into the light. And he's not going to like it. But when it's gone, it's gone. Yep. Is that kind of a good explanation of what was going exactly on? Exactly it. That's exactly it. And then the intelligence of ayahuasca to know that it had to play the game for real. And it was willing to bring me down, down deep into my deepest, into my deepest fear at that point. And mm. it was willing to do that. But the, the impulse of it wasn't to be a trickster, wasn't. It was because it because she loved me and she wanted me to be free of that fear because only if I was free of that fear would I be free, even more free of fear in its totality. So it was this it was this loving energy, but that loved you so much that it wasn't wasn't coddling, wasn't saying like, 
uh, we better not show them that fear because that one's a little too close to home. You know, ayahuasca is like, we got to get you beyond what your deepest fear is. And so when you do a medicine like that, you got to be ready that anything, if you think you're going to shelter something from ayahuasca, you think you're going to shelter this little fear, or this <laughs> trauma thing, like, no, don't go there. The moment you're like, no, don't go there. She's mama's going like, oh, we're going there. <laughs> like we're going there. So it seems like, because on an analogy of what we go through in life, you know, we're, we've, you know, if, if you believe that we create our soul plan and our soul blueprint and we have challenges that we have to live through in this life uh, to overcome certain things, you know, in life, you could have been given that lesson as well. Might've taken you a long time. Might've you have, might've had a cancer scare, might've exactly. had you like months and months of like testing and this and that till finally you realize you don't have anything and you could have gone through all of that, but this is done in a few hours, intense and sped up, but life is, so it's almost like a, almost like a sped up mm -hmm. treatment plan yes. to overcome stuff in your own psyche. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. It's a proactive, it's a proactive treatment plan so that the universe and your life doesn't have to manifest this into your own reality. Now, still stuff gets manifested sometimes. You know, sometimes there's lessons you just won't learn or the medicine can't touch and still life has to do what life has to do. Oh, yeah. But if you start to believe that life is going to continue to present you with those things and places where you're contracted, places where you still have fear so that you can ultimately become free. And this is part of the kind of the, the doctrine of, of, you know, Peter Crone. Peter Crone talks about this life will continue to present you with the challenges to show you where you're not free. The medicines can help accelerate that path and actually illuminate fears that you didn't know you had, illuminate challenges and allow you to work with them proactively so that the universe doesn't have to drag you through a, a longer protracted near-death experience situation to get you over your fear of death or whatever else might be necessary. And I, and I really believe that. I believe in not that everything is preordained and destined. I still believe that there's some randomness in this world, but also there's a deep level of guidance and there's a deep level of intelligence of our soul working with the cosmos and the access that these plants and plant teachers give you, it does allow you to proactively accelerate the curriculum. And I, and I really believe that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So let's go into the, if that was just challenging, Let's go into yeah, this yeah. bad situation. Um, <laughs> what was it? So most of the bad situations involve times in which something in the set and setting goes off, right? Okay. So you don't, it's a situation where you don't, all of a sudden you can get convinced that you took the wrong medicine or something is happening that is not supposed to be happening because okay. then there's no, what was, what was, you know, I never had a question in that experience that the ayahuasca that I took was poison because I was with one of the great masters and they, I was taking ayahuasca in Peru in one of like, I trusted the medicine and I trusted the shaman. Mm -hmm. So the bad situations arise when you don't trust the medicine. Often, these are just some of the categories. You don't trust the medicine or you don't trust the shaman. And sometimes maybe you don't trust the dose of the medicine that you took. Right. Mm -hmm. So because there's a certain threshold where you're like, so if you're doing this on your own and you're not being guided, you could either, and let's say you got a street 
you know, some street version of this medicine. And it oh. could be like, oh, wow, I took poison. Actually, no, these mushrooms were not psilocybin cubensis. This was poison. And I'm actually dying because you get real nauseous and like, no, I'm actually dying of this poison. And that's not a fear that you actually had to deal with. I mean, of course, we're afraid of you know, drinking poison. So it's not mm -hmm. actually really helpful to your subconscious, <laughs> no. your psyche. No, it's, it's just, just horror. Terrifying. It's just trauma. Yeah. You're just traumatized okay. by thinking that that you've you've done something that's that's broken yourself or or really oh. injured yourself, and that's because you don't trust the 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 set and the setting and the medicine. So those are the situations where it gets really bad. Now it's not the only situations. Um, so one is you're not sure if you took the right medicine. You maybe took you're you're afraid like too much of the medicine. You know, I remember my friend Kyle. He was trying to take a small amount of LSD on a hike. And, uh, and he brought, you know, my other friend Ian and they're on this hike and he didn't realize that the LSD that he had, had condensed, evaporated and condensed to like five X the strength. It was liquid LSD. So Intense. it had condensed yeah. because yeah. it had been, it evaporated. So it's been a long time since he had it, but the part that evaporated wasn't the LSD. It was the water. So what was there was condensed LSD. So he was in this experience that he didn't understand also in a place that was really sketchy. They got to like the, you know, top of this mountain and they can't move and it's the beating sun. And like, that was, a traumatic, yeah, yeah, that was a traumatic experience. I remember he manages to finally text me and he was, he's an experienced psychonaut. Like Kyle mm -hmm. was like, he's, a you know, almost, he hadn't had the years, but he'd had like comparable experience to me. And he hits me up and he goes, Aubrey, I this is a life situation. I go, a life situation. <laughs> like, slow down, bro. <laughs> what do you, what do you even mean? I, and I, of course he meant like life and death situation. And I was like, all right, like get shade, you know, like drop a pin where you're at. We're sending help. You know, like I talked him through it. I figured it out, but he was in the wrong setting with the wrong amount of medicine because he wasn't aware of right. what had happened to his medicine. So that was a bad trip. And for Kyle, that was traumatic, but also for Ian, who hadn't had as much experience, it was a significantly traumatic experience. Like it took Ian a lot of time to like heal from that fear that we're on this mountain. No one's going to find us. We're running out of water. So we created trauma we're instead of die. taking it we're away. Gonna, exactly. Yeah. It actually create, and that's what I would call a bad experience. It creates trauma instead of eliminates trauma. So those are some of the situations. You can also get in a situation where you encounter legitimate dark forces. And mm -hmm. they can present you with challenges that if you don't come with the requisite skill set and intensity of focus, you can get in, you can take an off ramp into a, in, in, into a fearful place that you may not be able to get out of. Like, so there was a situation later on 2016, I'm doing ayahuasca, my father had, you know, I don't like to pathologize his condition, I like to mythologize it. So he was like in his King Lear moment lost in the woods, pathology would be paranoid schizophrenia. And for there's no link between that and his earlier psychedelic usage, it has a lot to do with him channeling, he went into a channeling practice without good guidelines. And it's a long story and we don't need to open mm -hmm. that bracket, but basically my father was in an isolated state of paranoid schizophrenia and I wasn't able to reach him. And so this force comes in, into my journey, my ayahuasca journey and starts playing all kinds of tricks and games and, and basically, you know, tries to 
get me to tries to pretend that it was able to steal my heart and then tries to negotiate back my heart. And then I'm negotiating for my heart. And then it starts negotiating for the soul of my father and then calling me a coward because I wouldn't trade my soul for the soul of my father. And it was this intense encounter with this demonic energy mm -hmm. that was like very, very, very scary and very intense. Now I was also, I had enough practice and I had, I could feel enough guidance. I was able to navigate it through, but I could also see that if I made a few wrong choices and if I succumb to that fear, or if I made that deal, I might always believe that I, that I traded my soul to the devil. And I might always, I might've made this kind of psychological pattern and this construct that it would have kept me in fear. So there are situations that can arise that if you make a wrong, if you make the wrong choice or you go down the fear off ramp, you might not be able to get back on the highway of love, you know, for a while, you <laughs> might have to really undo that. So that's another situation that could have gone bad, but didn't. And I'd say the last situation of bad is my fiance at the time, Whitney Miller. Um, she went to go do medicine, went to do ayahuasca at a place that I wasn't, I wasn't going with her. She was going to do her own journey. And she encountered a female shaman, a maestra, who you would call a bruja, which is a sorceress or a witch. Yeah. Yeah. And she cursed Whitney in one of the in one of the ceremonies. Now, this may all sound like this is all woo-woo, curses aren't real. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. <laughs> and I think it's actually better if you believe that. So if you want if you believe that, like please keep your belief. You know, I don't want you to change that belief because living in the world of curses is scary. So before you before you continue, just so you know, uh, I am Cuban. Uh, so I am I was raised with uh, brujeria, and uh, you know, being uh, the the white the the white black the white magic and the black magic. Yep. It's kind of like Cuban um, voodoo. I was aware of all of this. I had family members who who you know were wore white for a year because they were there you know trying to be the white um, the white magic or the white war not mm -hmm. warlock but white witch all that kind of stuff. so yeah. i get it and this is my always my feeling on all of that stuff i respect it and i don't want to have anything to do with it i agree i respect I it and i believe don't believe irrelevant respect it and move on because <laughs> i've seen some stuff i'm from <laughs> i'm from i'm from the caribbean i've seen some and i i'm just like you know what respect it move on respect it yes. and just stay away from me continue sir one of, the, one of the best so one of the best and i've always said this one of the best defenses against you, you either do one of two things one you really learn how to deal with this field and you learn how to reverse you know reverse dark mat you learn, you really go deep and you become a jedi or drink budweiser heavy and say it's and don't allow your belief field to create a vulnerability like yeah. Someone like my, you know, my, my friend, I used to hang out with Cowboy Cerrone. He's a UFC fighter, right? He yeah. is probably the most invincible to brujeria of anybody <laughs> I know. Because all he's going to do is drink Budweiser and, and, uh, and, all... and, they, and they, they could try their best magic on him and, he'd be... and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't affect him. So it's a great defense. The Budweiser defense is like, the Budweiser, the Budweiser defense is... Is, is incredibly strong. Good, good. So Whitney was somewhere in the state where she was vulnerable enough, you know, mm. 
And so she was, she was hexed. She was cursed and she came back and she was just different. You know, she's like, I consciousness and I hate this. Like, and I was like, man, like something. And she was like, in this one, you know, this one shaman, like it's worst energy from her. And like, she said enough where I was like, all right, like, I think I know what might've happened here. So we're going to go and we're going to go into another aspect of the deep jungle to a specialist in reversing bad magic, mm -hmm. which is Hamilton Souther and Maestro uh, Alberto Davila. Mm -hmm. And that's their specialty. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so Hamilton was aware of it. Hamilton didn't share anything with aware of the possibility of it because I didn't know. I was like, look, we're going to go and drink. And Whitney did not want to drink ayahuasca. She's like, Fuck. I was like, please, babe, like, just trust me. Just try this. You'll never have to go again. You can have the smallest amount. Like, just, mm -hmm. just, and I didn't want to freak her out either and be like, hey, yo, you're cursed. Like, mm -hmm. You don't want to like freak someone out. Um, but I was like, all right, let's go in and let's just, let's just, just have the smallest taste, you know, and then. So Maestro Alberto, who Hamilton didn't share anything with, he's just going around the room and he's doing what's called the bentiata, which is like the individual ikaros to each person. And they're all the same for everybody. He does, you know, six different people, same, 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 same. And they're all beautiful. And then he stops at Whitney and he starts puffing his mapacho and he's taking his time. <sighs> And it was like this interesting pause in the rhythm because he was just basically moving one to the other to the other. And then he bursts into this Icaro that was so strident. And so like my, my you know, hair standing up on my arms now just thinking of it so strident and almost like it was cutting and like this, this pounding Icaro. And then Hamilton kind of slides over to my mat and says, hey, look, you know, I don't want you to be worried, but this is one of Alberto's most powerful hex reversal Icaros and Whitney's going to be fine. There was sort of some bad magic. He's straightening it. He's straightening it out. She's going to be, she's going to be hundred percent when this is done. Just don't worry. And he just lays into it, lays into it, lays it, lays into it. And the whole room is just like everybody's hair is standing up. And then he finishes, blows some more smoke, says a few things in Spanish and, and then, and then moves around, moves around and then continues with all of us with the same Bentiada as before. So he detected that thing and he broke that thing. Then him and the shamans. So him, there was Maestro Alberto, who's the head shaman, who taught Maestro Hamilton, who taught Maestro Christian. So three shamans, three generations of shamans in the front. And they start talking because in their lineage, in, the, in what they do, when they reverse the hex or the curse from a bruja or a brujo, in this case, it was a bruja, then there it's like a fucking video game it's crazy but they make contact with the person who hexed the person because through the magic they're able to actually identify who did it and it opens up the possibility to go into astral battle and then they can actually battle wow. and their their code and their ethos is to take down and to take down the brujos and the brujas they're like the jedi so like we discovered a sith we're going to take them out. And when they take yeah. them out, they get to take their magic. They get to take part of their power if they defeat them in spiritual combat. So they're getting in this big argument in the front, in the front of the room, again, in Spanish, so we can't hear it. But Hamilton shared the details. And Alberto was like, I've got her. Let's go get her. Let's fuck her up. 
because they're super i mean they're like they're like this is like, this is like the ultimate jedis you know that's amazing so, so and hamilton's like no like we're not going into battle we got this group here let's just leave her be let's let her go on her way you know if we find her again we can take care of her but we're here to help heal this group and alberto's like that's not what we do we find bad magic we find a bruja and we take their medicine and that's how that's how we handle business like this is how we run the law down here and hamilton's like no we can't do that and finally alberto's like oh fine you know like well let the let the sith go yeah exactly (laughs) exactly so yeah so i I mean, it's, it's, uh, those are just a couple examples of some of the, some of the places where, you know, things can go bad that are not just scary and challenging, but things can go bad. And obviously all of these stories have happy endings, fortunately. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, there's some, there's some bad places. So it sounds like that the, um, the majority of bad trips or challenging trips, if you will, are because you've gotten onto a roller coaster that was put together by an 18 year old carney and you really don't trust that that per- it's not like you're yes. getting onto a disney ride at disney world where you're just like this it's, we're solid it's this is yeah. and if you're scared if you're yeah. scared you're look good. in the mirror yeah exactly yeah like, yeah if you're, you're scared you're scared like no i'm on a di- i'm on tron i'm on guardians of the galaxy <laughs> yeah, like yeah. i'm cool i'm cool this is they check this stuff 25 hours you know they've never had an issue but yeah. if you're at a fe- at a carnival and all of a sudden you got an 18 year old carney and you're looking at them like, oh, that I wouldn't trust him with anything, let alone <laughs> building this entire thing and running it for me. So that's the yeah. equivalent of a bad trip because if you're on that roller coaster and things start to go awry just a little bit, you're like, oh my god, the 18 year old carney put this together. Did he forget a bolt? Yeah. And that's Correct. so that seems to be what the bad trips are mostly. The majority right. of the bad trips are exactly that. And it could be the bad, it could be a bad setting. So the medicine could be right. Or it could be like so many people have been in like a, you know, especially in, when you're younger, you know, you're at a high school party and then you oh, take yeah. your first yeah. psychedelic medicine and then the cops show up and then it's are like, <laughs> you know, like this. <laughs> you're in the back of a car tripping yeah. on, shro- on shrooms. And yeah, just like, that's not a yeah, bad setting, bad setting, <laughs> bad setting. Yeah, exactly. That, that's... An actual fight breaks out, you know, like while you're, like, while oh you're tripping. My God. Yeah, exactly. Like people are throwing punches and you're like, I am not prepared for this situation. <laughs> am right I? Now. Is this happening or am I tripping this? <laughs> yeah, and all of a sudden exactly. a fist comes to your face. Wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I felt that, Ayahuasca. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was too real. Was That's too, feeling this real. Is, too real. <laughs> is this blood or is this eels? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. That must be so. Let me ask you though, when you're done with one of these trips, how long does this last? Do you have a residual effect of the trip? Or is it just like when it's over, it's over? The residual effect is, is to me lifelong. I mean, I, no, I feel like, no, but like, like every, literally the trip itself, like mm-hmm. not, not the, so it depends of on the, the trips. Yeah. 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 So it depends on the medicine. So each medicine okay. has a duration. Okay. So for example, on the shortest side, let's go to shortest to longest. So shortest side would be for me, smoked NNDMT, which is called the spirit molecule. So if you smoke it, it lasts probably no more than 10 minutes for peak. And then maybe 20 minutes, you're out, you're through the twilight. It's about a 20 minute trip, smoked and NDMT. Smoked 5-MeO-DMT, you're talking maybe 40 minutes. It's a little bit longer. Oh, it's very specific. Uh, yeah, it's very specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
and um, very qualitatively different as well, even just switching the molecular structure. That one's called the God molecule. It kind of opens you to the field of the divine. Very, very intense, probably the most intense, but in short duration psychedelic. Then probably next, you know, next shortest would be injectable ketamine. You're talking hour, hour and a half. And that's operating on NMDA receptor sites. And it has this kind of, I call it star medicine. It kind of opens you to um, more of the celestial dimensions of consciousness that are really disembodied. It can be very confusing because it's almost leaping beyond the astral levels and taking you into like the seventh dimension, if you will, from the third to the seventh, skipping four, five, and six often. So mm -hmm. you don't encounter a lot of the, the entities and things on ketamine. But it's a it's a really powerful, beautiful medicine. Cannabis, smoked cannabis. You're talking, you know, two and a half hours or whatever. You're high. Um, edible cannabis is a bit longer, of course. So then, then we start getting into about like the mushroom level range, which is usually no more than five hours. So mushrooms are about five hours. East Forest as an is a musician who has a great five hour album. Um, called music for mushrooms and it's perfect nice. because yeah. like by about hour four you're kind of coming down as music's trailing off so mushrooms are about five hours ayahuasca ayahuasca is tricky you know it kind of goes in waves sometimes it can be eight hours sometimes because sometimes it can be delayed onset sometimes it can be you know three four hours and you're out ayahuasca is a you know orally active dmt and it becomes orally active because they mix dmt containing leaves the chakruna leaves with the ayahuasca vine which contains a potent maoi monoamine oxidase inhibitor which prevents the breakdown of dmt but you're working with your own not only spirituality but pharmacology so it can affect you differently depending sure. on how it works so yeah. it can go up to like you know six eight hours or it can go as short as like three four hours and you could be out but it starts to be in the longer range mushrooms are pretty reliably five hours then getting longer we're talking about lsd we're talking about 10 hours wachuma which is um you know wachuma san pedro which is mescaline is the active ingredient we're talking more like 10 hours so we're getting in peyote 10 hours we're talking yeah. about that range we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. Then we're moving into the longest acting. So LSD, Wachuma, you know, peyote, peyote, they're all in that 10 hour range, sometimes up to 12, but usually more like 10. And then, uh, and then Iboga, then, then that's the, that's the, that's the one that's like the longest. So your Iboga experiences, if you're doing what's called a flood dose, which is a full dose, Iboga is a, shrub that grows in Gabon and it's uh, offered by the Buiti people. That's the main lineage tradition that offers this medicine. It's at minimum an 18 hour experience. Um, and it can go up to 36 hours that you're, that you're, how do you, how do you survive that? Like you're not eating, you're not drinking. It is, it is no, you, you can, well, you can start to be able to sip. I mean, of course people dry fast all the time. I mean, sun dancers dry fast and sweat lodge for four days in a row. Right. So That's true. you can, you can not drink water and eat for quite a few days and be okay. Um, but it's intense and it's, <laughs> or it's unbelievably uncomfortable. And you only, you only do a boga like that a couple times in your life. Like a boga is not one of those things where you like, I've done a boga 50 to 50 flood doses. Like you're doing that's very Why? unusual <laughs> yeah exactly it's like it it's really it 
it is a very powerful medicine and it's not something that you need to do all the time. Now, iboga microdoses, that's a different story. You can, you can do that differently. And, and that's, a, that's a much different experience, shorter duration. So let me ask you, this concept of microdosing has been coming out more and more in the mainstream where you can literally buy microdoses of <clears throat> LSD and it's really like kind of opening people up but in a micro way, but it is definitely yeah. seeing it. Can you explain a little bit about what microdosing in the term of where I'm seeing it out there kind of in the world now, it's a little bit more acceptable to microdose mm -hmm. of psilocybin and things like that? Well, it's certainly much safer, right? Like mm -hmm. you're not going to have the bad experiences that you would have. And I'm saying bad and also saying challenging. The experiences mm -hmm. are neither going to be bad nor challenging. So, but the challenging yields an immensely positive result that mm -hmm. is only available in a mega dose or in a flood dose or in a, in a proper full dose. But what it can give you is it can start to adjust your, your brain chemistry. So I would liken microdosing to a meditation practice. Like what you've done in your meditation practice is you've shifted your neurological patterning. You've shifted mm -hmm. your neurological patterning. Microdosing is shifting your neurological patterning. You're just shifting the way that blood is flowing in your brain subtly. You're shifting the way that your receptor sites are open or active. So it can be very helpful to, you know, to kind of continue a steady practice that's subtly shifting your brain chemistry in a way so that if you're, you know, plagued with a kind of chronic depressive state, you know, then microdosing could maybe really help you a chronic anxious state. And without you actually doing any any major lifestyle changes it's just subtly shifting you almost like a good supplement might or or a good meditation practice or a good you know if breath you started work. like running breath work all of these things um so it's a subtle change over time that can really be beneficial it can also increase in in the kind of immediate it can increase productivity or creativity in certain ways as you're kind of shifting your neurochemistry I'm not the, I, exp, I explore microdosing. Um, mm -hmm. And I certainly am, you know, very, you know, very positive about the field of it. Uh, for me, it's not the area that's the most exciting to me. Sure. Um, but it's also, it's also like, I know so many people who have yielded such incredible benefits. To me, I'd rather, if I'm depressed, I'd rather get down find find the find the the weed at the root and pull that pull that sucker out and look at it and go like interesting and then tell the story about the weed that i saw and where it was came from and why it was there and why it was affecting me and tell that on a podcast rather than having something subtly shift so maybe that's just my kind of wild pedagogic nature where i like to teach about <laughs> what i discovered you know yeah. well yeah i think it's been established that you are uh an interesting soul to say the least Aubrey. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it might be in your nature to just go into the deep end of the pool where there's a lot of people yeah. in this world who will not it is not in their nature to go in the, in the pool and the microdosing might be the only way I think it's, you know, I would, I'm much more likely to recommend, first of all, I don't recommend psychedelics to people right. unless oh, I no. really know them, right? Like you don't yeah. recommend them, but I will recommend breath work. I will recommend meditation. I will recommend sensory deprivation, flotation, ecstatic dance. I'll recommend all of that. And that's, so we have a group called fit for service. There's no psychedelics involved in fit for service whatsoever. It's all 
these practices, breathwork, ecstatic dance, meditation, communication, you know, time in nature, want like these little mini vision quests. So I will recommend that unequivocally. And then when it comes to microdosing, there's a pretty, you know, I'm pretty open to recommending that to people and be like, you should maybe consider microdosing, take a look at, you know, Fadiman's protocols, take a look at, you know, Paul Stamets protocols, and you know, which involve different mushrooms. And uh, you really take a good look at that. And, I, and I'm, I feel very comfortable recommending that because I think the safety is really there. They're not going to get into any deep waters. And mm -hmm. even though I'm happy to receive those calls at, at you know, two, three a.m. where people are like, it's a life out, like, situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've received plenty of those, and I'm well equipped to deal with them. I don't prefer to deal with them. I don't want people to go mm. through those experiences. So, I think microdosing is a really important option that's come on the table, and I'm much more comfortable giving that as like, yeah, I recommend not that people do it, but I recommend that people really, if you're listening, look into it for sure. And then, if you're really called to, you know, taking a big psychedelic medicine journey, really search deep inside, you know, do as much research as you can listen to some more of my podcasts, definitely buy my book when it comes out in February, Psychonaut, if you're interested, you're going to tell all the stories and, and then, you know, find really good practitioners that can really guide you in a, in a, in a really healthy way. And the field of practitioners is also interesting because there's a lot of different practitioners that have come online in the States mm -hmm. and they're not all equal, yeah, you know, and I don't want to start calling out names and, and doing all of that because, but there's some that, are, that don't know what the fuck they're doing. And there's right. some that do know what the fuck they're doing. And it's interesting. So be mindful that there's a mixed bag and there's different people like, Oh, I got this particular protocol. And there's one group that is very popular. And I'm, again, I'm not going to mention it, but it has a very reliable, it's a very reliable source of, you know, the way that they utilize medicines. And if somebody's doing that protocol, you know, and they, uh, I'll just, without sharing the protocol is called the journey. And if you're doing the journey, you know, like it's probably going to be a pretty good experience. You know, they, they've kind of worked out the kinks. It is pretty good. There's another, you know, there's another protocol that's come on board. That's I've it's pretty reckless. And I think actually somewhat dangerous. So just be mindful of what's happening. And there's also shamans that are ro roaming around offering ayahuasca all over the place. Some are, you know, some are competent, some are not. But the thing about domestic shamans is they're less likely to be brujos or brujas. They're just, it's more of a competency issue. It's more of like, let's, because ayahuasca is also brewed similar to how the LSD was able to get stronger through evaporation. If you cook ayahuasca too long, it becomes concentrated. So what they think the dose is could be three times as strong as a dose. So one cup of ayahuasca could be like three cups and then all chaos could break loose, including the ayahuasca that the facilitator took. So you could be literally in a fucking circus where there's feces flying around the room. Like the stories that I've heard- I've are heard like, them too unbelievable unbelievable like unbelievable things can happen so it needs domestic, to be respected domestic u.s shamans are probably not going to curse you but they may be wildly incompetent so just be <laughs> just be mindful so, so if 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 uh, becca calls me from the hollywood hills and says hey man i got this dude 
Yeah. He went to he he saw a documentary about this. I think we could yeah. do this this weekend. Probably stay away. <laughs> I would say so. You know, I would say so. But you know, sometimes they're good. You know, sometimes they're good. It, but ultimately, like, I really, you know, I recommend people go to the. I can only recommend the people who I know, and I know the. Sure. I know the facility at Soltara. I know my brother Sean Chester, who's been on my podcast, will guide you to the right place. I know that Maestro Orlando, you know, will guide you in a good way. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, and there needs to be more people who I can really trust. I do know some domestic, but I can't share their names. There are people that, that are offering medicine, you know, Jen and Valco who are on my podcast, basically you can look at my podcast. You'll find the people who, if they're awesome, I've probably interviewed them at some, <laughs> at some point, you know, because yeah, you wouldn't interview the, 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 uh, no. that, the one that Becca knows. No. You're not interviewing no. the one, the shaman that Becca no. knows is basically. What you're <laughs> no, that's not the, that's not the way I like to roll. I've been in the game too long. You know, I've been in this, been in this long enough. So let me ask you though, brother, that list that you said from the, 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 the shortest amount of time all the way to, the longest, like thirty, you know, fifteen hours to thirty-six hour. Yeah. Did you experience that whole gambit in your life? Have you taken taken all of that at one point or another? Oh yeah, I mean everything My I mentioned God. is. I'm it's, not. It's, I'm not it's, reading personal. off a book. It's all personal yeah. experience, and not only personal experience, but I mean, uh, uh, many, many of these experiences. Iboga, the long one again. You don't do that many times in your life, so that one is three i've done three of those you know three of those 18 hour experiences in my Which, life ayahuasca is probably you know 40 50 mushrooms in the hundreds dmt in the hundreds ketamine and not like through 24 years yeah there's been a lot of journeys you know wachuma probably around 20 and like there's so been a, there's been a lot i've done all of these things many 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 times and and you know really sometimes you know very rarely do I do them in a in a non sacred way, and that's only like yeah, sure. I've occasionally I've been at Burning Man and I've had some Molly, you know, like <laughs> for sure, or taken some mushrooms. But particularly, my way of accessing this is for the purpose and the intention of Spiritual. accessing my spiritual actualization and growth and my joy. Like mm -hmm. I can't tell you, you know, I, it's funny. Like I'm 87% Ashkenazi Jew, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I met somebody in Kauai and he's also same. And, and he said something funny. He was, cause he was feeling my energy. He's also been on the spiritual path. And he's like, wait, you're saying you're almost full blooded Jew. I was like, yeah. He's like, and you're not anxious <laughs> and, and you're not, <laughs> and, you're, and I'm, like, I'm like, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, happy. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm so happy. And like, he's like, you're so calm. I was like, yeah, well, if you met me, you know, if you met me from 17 to 25, like you'd have found a different person and not to, and not to also, you know, just say categorically that Jews have this anxious tendency, but there sure. is like Holocaust trauma and my, you right. know, my ancestors, they fled from the pogroms. And we do know that these trauma patterns, these anxious patterns of, we never know when the next people are coming after us, they do travel. So it's not to make a generalization that all Jews are kind of anxious you know, for sure not, of course not. But there is also patterns that go through, you know, lineages that Ge generational. people experience. It's generational. Genera yeah, generational. It's generational trauma. So 
I've been able to work through. It's just kind of a, a tongue in cheek story to say that sure. my path has allowed me to actually move into a place of peace and love and joy that has allowed me to move through these states of anxiousness and fear and, and all of the things that aren't exclusive to my Hebrew lineage, which are universal sure. in nature. But it was just right. funny getting that reflection from somebody who is also Jewish. So we are allowed to talk about ourselves in a certain way. I guess we get permission, you know, and and uh, and and just offer that reflection in that this path has allowed me to fundamentally change the the nature of the generational trauma that I, you know, I'd been passed down to me from my parents and my grandparents and 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 just live a different life, a life that's so much more free. And it's not that I don't have my challenges and I don't go into sure. my own difficulties and dark places and places where I throw my hand up and start crying and say it's too much and I don't think I can make it but but I'm so happy man I'm so happy oh, and my perform awesome, my man. performance also like I'm still I'm 42 I'm balling on the basketball court just like I was balling when I was 18 you know like I'm That's balling cool. I'm still like crushing it in the in the business world and everything like so every in every category I feel like my life is just is just, you know, gotten better and better. My relationship is off the chart. Like so many things about my life is are so good. Mm -hmm. And I can't give all the credit to psychedelics. Of course not. I've had great mentors, great teachers. I've had great personal practices and willingness to do the hard workouts and the cold plunges and all of the things and a dedicated breath work practice and, you know, the different, you know, different ways that I access nature, all of these things count, everything, everything contributes. But fundamentally, it's not only changed my life spiritually, but it's allowed me to just live in a different state of being as my kind of natural state. And, uh, and so I'm trying to be a bridge to say, like, you don't have to sacrifice anything, like I'm still at 42, out on the court, trying to take people's souls like Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> right? <laughs> And then, Again, <laughs> extremely spiritual, sir. You are evolved beyond all evolution, sir. And then, you know, but then at the end, we'd go that we just played, we actually played on, you know, this last, I don't know when this podcast was released, but it was this last Sunday. It's 107. We played oh, two it's and a half hours. Let's play two and a half hours of three on three. And it was, it was, we got after each other as hard as we could. We finished that and we all go in the pool and we all laugh and we talk about each other's lives and we each share a meal together. And it's like, there's this, this beauty in competing that hard and then coming back and like knowing that all these brothers went through that same heat and it didn't matter who won or lost at that point or who made the shots or who didn't. So it's like, I've been able to include all of the beautiful parts of my life. Like so many people think, oh, I'm going to do ayahuasca. I'm going to have to quit my job. I'm going to fucking wear beads and robes and like, <laughs> no, not unless you want to. I mean, if you want to do that, you can, but you yeah, don't have sure, to. Sure. You know, right, right. Like you can, you can still wear, you, you can still wear your flossy jewelry. You can still do all, it's just, what are you, what are you doing it for? Why are you doing it? Do you, are you doing it out of joy? Like if you really love a Bentley because of the fucking craftsmanship of that Bentley and it just fucking feels good when you drive it, you're still going to drive a Bentley, you know, like sure. you can still love it. Like, it's not like you have to give up all your, your material possessions, but you're also going to be driven by a higher purpose and a deeper understanding of why, like, why do you love this? What's the right. purpose? Are you doing this to show off? Are you doing this to try and be better than somebody else? Are you doing this because, man, I just love it. Like the Bentley makers know how to make a car or the Aston Martin makers know how to make an engine that just yeah. sounds good and it fires me up, you know? 
it doesn't mean you can't have your kinky sex yeah, if but- you get spiritual as well like yeah go for it but know why you're doing it like understand the full field that you're playing in and that's also part of the message is like you don't have to give up the things you love about being human you just have to give up the false things that you're chasing that are ultimately unsatisfying because you don't want to yeah. chase those anyways so it seems to be opening up the why a lot more than anything else because it's the you're you're absolutely right like the whole thing is like oh you can't be rich and spiritual you know which is such a false narrative and it's yes. like well can you be wealthy well yeah you should be abundant life should be abundant look at an apple tree for god's sakes you yep. know it's not just one apple that pops out there's you know hundreds on, on one tree alone and then there's a whole row of them so there's abundance in nature so you should have abundance in your life but the why is a very i love that what you said there because it's like why do you want this car why right. do you want to buy this this these clothes what are you doing it for? Is it because of the way you feel? Does it feel actually technically feel good on your skin? Or yeah. are you just trying to put a logo on yourself to make yourself look better than you, bigger than you are? So that, exactly. that's a really great distinction, my friend. But, but brother, before we go, there's one thing I wanted to talk to you about because I saw this, I saw your video on it and I was like, man, I'm fascinated. The dark retreat, the mm-hmm. darkness retreat, the darkness retreat, which seems so simple. Go into a dark room for six days and uh, God will show up, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I've heard about sensory depri- deprivation and, and going into that tank. And that could be a trip as well. Just going, oh, you got to do tank. it. Oh, I'm dying to do, do it. it. I'm dying to do it. Actually. I, I know there's plenty in Austin here that they yeah. have good tanks. So I'm dying to do that. But the darkness retreat, talk a little bit about, you know, what was that like day one, day two, like what happens to you? during that process of the darkness retreat, because most of us, I mean, I've been in pitch dark, but like not you pitch, pitch uh, no, like I said, not pitch, pitch exactly. dark, but exactly. I have been in moments that I've been like, man, I can't see my hand in front of my face. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in, I've been in tunnels. I've been in caves. Yeah. Actually I haven't been in pitch dark. Cause I've been in, I've been in the, in the caves, in the, in the cave caves black. here in Austin. Yeah. Cave black. And you just can't, there's K-black no light. Black is K black. Exactly. Yeah. There's no light anywhere. So tell me what that's like for. So that's days. where the, that's where the tradition developed. Caves were really the only place where you could find something that had zero light leaks because mm-hmm. darkness and blackness are different. Like blackness is a thing where there is no, no matter how much your eyes adjust, there is no difference anywhere you look eyes open, eyes closed. It's just black. And right. that was, that developed as an old practice in caves where they were accessible where people would go into the caves. And this was part of a initiatic or shamanic practice. The Kogi people have a very extensive practice where they bring certain kids in there for an initiation. They kind of choose the medicine people. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And there's a, there's a quote that I like to mention and I, and I use it in my documentary and it's from Khalil Gibran. Oh. Every and, and he says, every man is two men, one who is asleep in the light and the other who is awake in the darkness. Ooh. And that's just a powerful quote because in the light, you know, this is often called the Maya, the illusion. And I think it's more than that. I think there's so much beauty. I think that's reductionist makes it all like this isn't the real. This is also the real, but there's a real reality that comes to you in the black that's that's just different and you have to let it it's slow you have to let it seep into you 
like the blackness becomes, I called it obsequious, like it's there, it's like they're seeping through you and loving you in this interesting way. And then allowing these things that are completely internal, because it's such an internal thing, it's just your mind. Right. It's all that's there is your mind. And yeah, you can feel your body. So your body doesn't go anywhere, but your body can't do that much. You're very limited with what you can do with your body. You can do a little yoga. You can do some push-ups. You can wiggle. I spent a lot of time wiggling, <laughs> but like you don't have much that you can do and you're not, there's no sound really either other than occasional sounds that might be coming out from around outside, whatever place that you're in, but you're alone with your mind, just your mind for days and days and days. And you don't know day and night, the place that I went, they mixed up the times that they served breakfast and lunch and dinner. So you didn't, you lost the sense of time. You weren't tracking with time. How many days have I been in here? Well, I kind of know based on the meals, but I'm not really sure because they could have mixed it up. And, and so you get into this kind of timeless state of just you and your mind. And of all the journeys I've done, people have been more scared of the, of the darkness than anything else. But to me, it was, it was very funny. It's like, what do you mean you're scared of the darkness? That means that you're afraid of your own mind, right? Like, cause right. there's nothing else there. You're not taking any other medicines. This is just you and your mind. So if you're afraid of your mind, you have a monster that you're living with 24 seven. And so you have a choice. If you're living with a monster, you either, you know, let's say you think there's a monster under the bed. Well, you either shut the lights off in your room and then run and jump on your bed and hold tight in the covers. And you're worried about going to the bathroom because the monster might grab your heels. Obviously, well, that's that, <laughs> obviously that's the monsters <laughs> under the bed. Do they grab you by the heels? We all know that. Terrifying. <laughs> but why would you want to live with that monster? Why mm. not actually go explore and look at it and get it so close to you that you can smell it and taste it and feel it and so it acts slower than the, the psychedelic medicines like ayahuasca, but it's even more powerful in many ways because it just allows you with no bridge and other filter, it just allows you to confront anything that's going on in your mind. And there is a psychedelic component. I mean, I had visions of my father that were really healing. I had, you know, whole, a whole list of things that changed my perspective on relationship, changed my perspective on myself, my love for my mother and my fears that I didn't know I had and things that were holding me back. It was again, yeah, I have a, you know, a powerful documentary that documents that whole process. Cause I had a blacked out tape recorder, which I wasn't sure was working. Cause I had to just memorize which button to push for on and off and just hope that I got it right. And fortunately I did, um, cause I practiced it enough and uh, I was able to tape record in the process. So I was able to dictate kind of live some of the stuff I was going through. Um, but it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And, uh, and really, I trust myself with my mind. And again, the, the anxiousness, right? Like, mm -hmm. that was a huge thing that this kind of chronic level of anxiety, like before the darkness, cannabis was probably the hardest medicine for me to deal with, to be honest. Because when I would have, when I would smoke cannabis or eat cannabis, I would get so anxious and people say, oh, cannabis gives you anxiety. I don't think so. I think cannabis reveals the anxiety that you have. Mm. And so for me, every time I would have cannabis, I was, I was so uncomfortable. And then after the darkness, that relationship started to change because all of those things I was anxious about, they just re reverberated and rippled up to the surface. And I was able to see them, deal with them slowly deal with these different emotions that were happening. 
And, uh, and it really was a profound kind of life-changing experience that, um, and also just gave me a, you know, you don't really, you don't really realize how much you take for granted until all of it's gone away. Like the right. fact that you can look outside your window and just see the trees and see, see, just to see, just sight itself and sound and music. I remember the first music I listened to at the end of that, I was like, oh my God, music. I take music for granted. Fuck, I take sight for granted. I take conversation for granted. And I was, I had this funny rant in the, in the documentary where I was talking about how I used to get all frustrated when I would be on a layover on a plane and my plane would be delayed. And I was like, the airport, <laughs> the airport is a circus of things to do. There's it is actually people you can call, you can turn a movie on, on your laptop. Yeah. You can do whatever. You know, yeah. like there's a circus of things to do. And like here in the darkness, there's just you and your mind and you just have to deal with it. So I really, you know, recommend that practice. And there's not that many places. The supply for darkness is very limited. There's mm -hmm. a place in Oregon called Sky Cave. Um, but I think there's going to be many more places that come online as mm -hmm. people become aware of this field. That's an ancient field. It comes in, you know, my teacher, Bharati, was trained in like the, there's a Hindu path that comes from, and of course the Kogi have a path. But again, mm -hmm. they were in caves. Um, but this is a little bit more comfortable than a cave because uh, you're just in a blacked out room. And it's, it's been so powerful that I actually blacked out my guest bedroom in my, <laughs> in my house here in Austin. So yeah. I'll do little mini darkness immersions where I'll go up there for eight hours or, you know, 16 hours through the night. And uh, it's pretty cool, though. All the people like I know I can never count on anybody being awake for breakfast who's <laughs> sleeping in my guest room because they'll come. <laughs> it'll be like 1 30 and they'll come down and be like. I don't know what happened. I slept 13 <laughs> hours. I was like, perfect. You needed the rest. Black, you know, a black, a no blacked sun. out room. Yeah, a blackout room is the black. best. That at like 50 degrees inside the room with a bunch of covers, <laughs> yep. you're yep. out for 18 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So people who come to visit, they're like so well rested. But uh, yeah, That's it's been amazing. one of the great, the great practices on the psychonautic path. My friend, I can continue to talk to you for, for days. So, I, and I think this is the beginning of a, hopefully a beautiful friendship and you'll have, I'll have Indeed, you back. Brother. I will have you back on the show. If you have, if you'll come back uh, when your book comes out so we could go deeper down this rabbit hole and talk about yeah, other cool sure. stuff. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all of my guests. Okay. What is your definition of living a fulfilled life? A fulfilled life comes from clarified desire. And in my lineage, the Hebrew lineage, they call that berur, the clarification of your desire, the clarification so that you're actually seeing what you really want. And again, this goes to the why. Why am I doing this? What am I here? What is my, what is my highest purpose that includes my purpose, but transcends my purpose so that my purpose and God's purpose are actually woven together into a braid. And a clarified purpose, having a clarified purpose, and then having the courage to live that clarified purpose, that's the name of the game. And so through this process, clarifying my own desire and feeling my own desire line up more with the divine, the divine desire, the desire of spirit, so that I'm living my whole life with a deeper sense of purpose. To me, that encapsulates the definition. Beautiful, my friend. If you can go back in time and talk to little Aubrey, what mm. advice would you give him? Yeah, this one's... Uh... This one hits deep, man. This one hits deep. 
because I wouldn't tell Aubrey to change anything other than just to have more faith that it's going to work out. It's gonna work out, little buddy. It's, like, it's gonna all work. It's gonna it's gonna all work out, little buddy. Because I spent so much time doubting that I'd be right yeah. here where I am right now. Like I was doubting this so long and so tortured and so anxious and worried and afraid that I wouldn't get here. And here is just <laughs> one stop. It's not a destination. It's just one stop on a journey. But man, I would just tell him, I'm like, buddy, it's gonna work out it's going to work out, buddy. Like, just keep going, like have more faith that it's going to work out and just ease those kind of rough edges of the unnecessary anxiousness and unnecessary self-doubt and just say like, it's all going to work out, buddy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Beating, beating yourself up, man. That's the thing I had to learn That's about. It, man. I had so, to learn that. So man. I, I was the worst with myself. I'm sure you were as well. Yeah. You just beat yourself up. And my wife was like, you got to stop destroying yourself. And I know. so finally, I just stopped. I just I know. stopped. I don't beat myself up anymore. And you know, it, there boy, was a, you there feel was lighter. A, there was a moment, I think it was probably 2014, 2015. And I finally, I was driving home from work and, you know, on it was really starting to take off and succeed. And, and my spiritual path was evolving and, and, and I was starting to get a platform and I'd started my podcast and I felt like, oh my God, like you're really doing it. And I, but I still, I was just brutal on myself. Every mistake, I just focus on that and hammer it. Like, like, I can't believe you did yeah. that. Like, yeah, wow, it was yeah, just yeah. so rough. Like, and I kind of, took on those voices of all of those of a uh, society yeah. you know yeah. and uh and i just said aubrey you're doing good man you've done well you're doing good and i remember that voice coming in and it was such a shock to my system for me to just say like aubrey you did good you're doing good and that was the first time i'd ever heard myself say that because even if i played a good basketball game scored 30 we win you know it'd be like man you missed that one shot you should have made that <laughs> shot man even thinking yeah, you know, yeah like, yeah, yeah. like, like it was focused. always focused on the always focused on the ways that could have been better and for once the first time i was just like you did good and and i've that i've just had to really through active yeah. will and focus just focus on really encouraging that that really positive self-talk and that positive voice because that's helped me so much more than the negative voice the negative voice is easy it's like we all get that but it has a limit to where it can take you and then the positive voice is going to take you the rest of the way yeah that's awesome how do you define god or source or the universe oh, or whatever you boy. want to call it <laughs> oh boy oh boy Source is the field of connection between us and everything else. And in the Hebrew lineage, you know, my teacher, Rabbi Gaffney, he names this Shekinah. And Shekinah is also another word for Eros, which is that force of the both allurement and autonomy, the way that molecules are connected together, the way that people connect together. It's 
it's this interconnectedness of all of life and all of what we would call even matter and spiritual matter. It's the totality of everything. And the feeling, the feeling tone of this everything, of the all that is, which is God, the feeling tone of the all that is, is love. That's the feeling tone of it. But there's many other places where it feels like God isn't. But actually, in the greater, greater picture, God is the all that is. And it's the connection between the all that is. And if you tap into it, you'll find the feeling tone of that being love. And, and that's, that's really God. It's very, it's much less personal than we make it out to be. It doesn't have the anthropomorphized qualities of judgment or this and that. Yes, we have our conscience and we have, you know, there's values and there's principles of Shekinah and Eros. It's almost like the Tao, like there's the way, Mm -hmm. but it's the feeling tone of it all is love that every place you fall, you'll fall into her arms. You know, that all of the insides of everything are lined with love. And to understand that you may have to even move past this lifetime to understand the whole mystery of it all. Like, why are people suffering? There's people suffering. Like, how does that make sense? How could there be a God when there are people suffering? Well, you can't actually explain that in the context of one life. You have to explain that in the context of the whole universe and the reincarnation. I know you've done so much work with NDE and reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to explain it in a greater context that includes your death and then your subsequent reincarnation. Opening the awareness, opening the awareness. Exactly. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the God, God is all, all that is. And to know that God is even in, Paul Selig says that to know that God mm-hmm. is even in the unknown is to claim faith, is that whatever is unknown, God is there too. And that's mm-hmm. the claim of faith, is that God is, God is everywhere. And we just may not have the ability to see that from our perspective. But when you really tap into the feeling tone of it, God is love, you know, right. and God is love in a way that's different than the way that we know love, but also participates in the way we know love. Like when we're in love with anything, it could be a cat, could be a person, yeah. could be a song, could we're participating in the field of God, the feeling tone of God. Beautiful, my friend. Beautiful. You should have a podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, sir, what is the ultimate purpose of this life? <sighs> <laughs> easy it's just softball question no. sir <laughs> all right so so i'm gonna quote snoop dog here yes he said, he said in a song it ain't no fun if my homies can't have none mm-hmm. right it ain't no fun if my homies can't have none yeah. and so the purpose of life is to enjoy it fully but enjoy yeah. it not at the expense of others to enjoy it as permission and in a way that gives an open invitation for everybody else to fully enjoy this existence and to help build a world where as many of us as possible can live in greater abundance, in greater joy and greater happiness, greater connection to God, greater connection to the field of love, greater truth, greater clarity, greater self-awareness, because you can be happy, but you can't, once you're connected to the field, you can't be fully, fully, fully happy and fulfilled in your purpose if everybody else isn't participating if your homies don't have none you know so the greater purpose is to it ain't fun it ain't fun it can be temporarily fun but your purpose always drives you and this is the this is the idea of the bodhisattva so for me the the 
the bodhisattva is a great example. The bodhisattva is the one who could sit on a mountaintop and find himself in a place of pure ananda, pure bliss, mm -hmm. you know, pure bliss consciousness. But because of his compassion for the suffering of others, descends down from the mountaintop mm -hmm. and says, I won't go sit in that place until everybody has a chance to sit in that place. Great answer, my friend. Now, I wanted to, before you go, man, I want you to talk about your uh, amazing festival that you got coming up and where can people tell us what it is, uh, what, what it's all about and where can people uh, get tickets if they want to go. Yeah, friend. thanks, bro. Um, this is one of the things I'm like really, really excited about now. So I've experienced festival culture all over the world in many different places, Burning Man, a bunch of different other festivals. And there's something about the energy of a crowd you know, where oh, yeah. a few or more are gathered, there's this presence of the divine, you know, this kind of communitas that develops, it's greater than the individual, you get to kind of merge with the field and good music and a great talk or a great transformational practice. And so I've been going and being attending these, these festivals for, you know, 20 years, but there was always like an evolution that I saw that was maybe possible. And if I was able to, with all of my knowledge, curate the right type of music, which includes that grimy, you're just dancing and letting loose, loose of all of your carnality and, and all of your expression. You know, we got Troy Boy and Dr. Fresh and the Glitch Mob that are just going to give this mm -hmm. deep primal sense to the, the more ethereal, incredibly spiritually activating, you know, music with amazing art so we're at the area 15 complex which is connected to meow wolf so we have private access to meow wolf at the end of the festival night so you'll be able to go explore these places of awe and wonder and awe and wonder is just a powerful also mm -hmm. a powerful force when you can step into awe that childlike awe and something happens to you it, it just puts you in relation to the to the world in a way reminds us of how stupendous and, and magnificent the world is and then also, but has a greater, a real ethos and a purpose to it in that all of the speakers, we have amazing speakers, Del Big Tree, Mama Gina, NQ, Matias Stefano is going to be there. It's oh, be incredible. Nice, Biet nice. Simpkin, so many other speaker blue. And it's all about building, we call it festival for a more beautiful world. And it's really about trying to bring temporarily so stepping outside of your current reality into a reality of a more beautiful world where we get to taste how beautiful life can be and how beautiful it can be to meet strangers in the synchronicity machine and feel a common ethos and create this kind of shared experience of awe and wonder and celebration and, and all of the things that are possible. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So yeah, the festival is called Arcadia with a K and Arcadia is a, just a name that we picked to stand for a symbol of a temporary, more beautiful world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, tickets are available. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K it's our second year. And there's a couple different, you know, ticket, ticket tiers, some that give you more access to some of the speakers on the earlier parts of the day. And some that are just, if you want to, you know, listen to the great music and the headline speakers at night. And then if you really believe in what we're doing, there's builder tickets, which give you lifetime access to the festival. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's different levels and, 
you know, it's, it's very expensive and it's probably the worst business venture I've ever undertaken. I, yes, I know. Getting, <laughs> yeah, we're just getting just... hammered. We're just getting <laughs> hammered, but, but I believe in it, you know, like I fundamentally believe that this is something that not only is right now, a beautiful yeah. experience to have yeah, and yeah. gives, yeah. gives an amazing possibility. Like I met my wife at a festival. I met Vailana sure. at Burning Man, you know, so many amazing things can happen when you join people with a shared ethos. And, uh, and so I really believe in it. And even though I'm taking a bath on the financial side, like <laughs> it's something that, uh, it's something I really believe in. And it's, it's my dream. It's my dream festival, you know? And so if you resonate with what I've been sharing, um, you know, I think you'll really, you'll really have an incredible experience at Arcadia. And where is it, where is it uh, going to be held? So it's at area 15 meow wolf, Las Vegas. And Vegas. so it. it's interesting. People are like Las Vegas. And again, people have these biases like Las Sin Vegas City. Is all dark. Sin, Sin City. City, City. That's where the demons live, sir. That's where the demons <laughs> live. But, but where, but ultimately, like where, if you're an angel, and I'm not saying I'm an angel, for sure not. I described <laughs> what I do to people on the basketball court. So don't get confused here. Like, don't put your. <laughs> Come out and play ball with me, and you're not going to see an angel. You're going to see Shang Tsung. All right, I fucking promise you that. So, but where where would that angelic energy be attracted? Do you think it's going to hang out in Angel Country Club? You know, in mm -hmm. Asheville, North Carolina, in Angel Country Club? No, it wants to go to the heart and transmute and transform sure, energy sure, sure. in the in the place where it needs to be transformed the most. And we didn't want to do it necessarily in Las Vegas, but. We were just drawn there through a series of crazy, divinely orchestrated mishaps and synchronicities. This was the only place we could throw it last year. And it went so well that we're like, all right, we're going to run it back. And because it has those, it has the, it's like this kind of island that's created within Las Vegas that actually opens you up to see Las Vegas in a new way by seeing yeah. a place that exists in Las Vegas. So no matter what city you live in, you can start to see, oh, if this island can be created in Las Vegas, it can be created anywhere in Hollywood right. and in any place. So yeah, it's at uh it's in it's in Vegas, baby. Nice, baby. That's awesome. Well, uh, I will make sure to put this link in the show notes for anybody who wants and in the description below if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, brother man, uh, and where by the way, where can people find out more about you besides the festival? About yeah. you, your show, and the amazing work that you're doing in the world, man. Yeah, thanks, bro. Um at Aubrey Marcus on Instagram. Uh, I have a podcast. It's been going for, I don't know, like 12 years now. So, so you, uh, you jumped honestly. in when, when podcasts weren't sexy. I know exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's really because I just, I love these conversations, you know, yeah. I, I cherish yeah. these conversations and, uh, unfortunately, too, you know, people have really resonated with my message over the years. So, um, yeah, that's the Aubrey Marcus podcast and uh aubreymarcus.com i mean basically you start you know looking for aubrey marcus on any of the channels you'll find me and uh and i'll be there <laughs> brother man this has been such an amazing conversation thank you so much for educating me educating my tribe about uh about psychedelics about plant medicine about standing in the dark and, li and looking into the heart of your soul and figuring yep. out what's going on and all the other things we discussed uh, it has really been a pleasure uh, talking to you, my friend. I look forward to our next conversation. So I look forward you. to it too. And I'm going to hit you up after we get off right now, just so people know. And I'm going to invite you to go into a sensory deprivation tank at the same time. We'll go in different tanks. We're not going to put yeah. together, everybody. <laughs> but nonetheless. <laughs> That's a whole other experience. <laughs> 
That's and a I, different one. I haven't done but, uh, that since my twenties. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, maybe one time in college I was I mean I needed the money. I needed the money, brother. It was you know, it's tough times back then, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I'm a, I'm gonna invite you to go and have a float experience with me. And uh and so hopefully we'll hang out soon. And and thanks for everything you do as well, brother. And thanks for everybody who's tuning in to the uplifting and expansive messages that you're offering. So just mad gratitude all around. Appreciate you, brother. I want to thank Aubrey so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and experience with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 327. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.